This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. taking all these books? I thought I'd take some light reading, in case I got bored. Welcome, everyone, to episode 254 of Literary Treks, your dedicated Star Trek books and comics show here on the Trek FM network, and Happy New Year! It is our first show of 2019. Ah, man. Now, I have to say we're recording this back in 2018, so you'll have to let us know. What's the future like? Do we have flying cars yet? I really want to know. You know, it's like 2018. 19 looks like 2018 to me right now. It does. It really does. I don't know. I, has the world ended? I, I really I really need to know. But uh, unfortunately, we're stuck here back in 2018. We're speaking to you from the past. But uh, I hope your new year and holidays were wonderful. And we're really happy to bring you another new year of literary treks. Uh, Bruce and I are stoked about the books and comics we get to read this year. But first, we've got kind of an interesting special episode for you guys, not something we normally do. Uh, there is no book or comic uh, singular in the feature today. Instead, we have a special interview for you from Literary Trek's special correspondent, Brandon Shemutala, who had the chance to catch up with author Michael Jan Friedman at the Northeast Trek Con uh, a couple of months ago. So we have that interview for you here. And we hope you enjoy it. But first, we do have a couple of other things we need to take care of. First, we have a new comic that we're going to review. Uh, so, Bruce, why don't you tell them what comic we're talking about today? Well, thank you, Dan. We are reviewing a comic called Star Trek Waypoint. Yes, we've done these before, but this is special number one. So it's a special trade paperback with four new stories in the Waypoint series. So this is really exciting because it's like double mint gum. We're getting twice as much as we did before in the Waypoint comics. Yeah, and this is really cool. I was a big fan of the Waypoint series. It was, you know, really kind of different way of telling Trek stories, some kind of new ideas and I think a lot of people point to the really weird ones, like the one from Naomi Wildman's perspective and the one that features the time-traveling Porthos saving Jonathan Archer's life. These are just really different stories that tell uh, stories from a different perspective. And, you know, we didn't have these when 
Waypoint first came out, but they're kind of like the short treks of the comic book world, I just realized. You know, that's a good point. It kind of is like that. But these Waypoint stories try to go a little more on the edge or something a little different in their style. Yeah, they generally have a different perspective or just a new take on Star Trek stories rather than the familiar storytelling tropes that we're used to. So like Bruce said, in this issue, we get four special stories. uh, And uh, I think we're going to do this. We'll go through each of them kind of one at a time and touch on them briefly. So the first story is called Only You Can Save Yourself. Uh, It's written by Dave Baker. Artist is Nicole Gao. And the colors by Miguel Muerto. And this is an interesting story all about Esri Dax. And it's kind of from her perspective as she's uh, helping a bunch of civilians out of an outpost that's under attack by the Andorians. And she's kind of drawing on the experiences of her past hosts to get uh, her and her people through this. And throughout the story, we see each of the hosts kind of guiding her through a different part of this situation that they have a special bit of knowledge or experience with. So Bruce, what were your kind of initial thoughts on this story? I like seeing the different hosts because this really plays well into the Esri Dax character where each of the hosts seem to always be haunting in a sense, not in a bad way, but she's always hearing the voices of the prior hosts and they kind of help make her into a superhuman in a sense. Cause I thought, wouldn't that be interesting to create a superhero where there's like different historical figures with a lot of knowledge and power. That's always informing this person on what to do. That's kind of how this is with Esri Dax. We're seeing these little ghosts. Of course, they're not real ghosts. They're more in her head, but for each situation that she's falling into and trying to save these people on the space station, they are informing her from their experience of giving her some knowledge or giving her advice on what to do. And I really love that play with the Esri character to see what she sees in her head. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. And I I like that, like you said, we see each of the hosts and they all have some sort of strength that they bring to the situation. For me, I thought it was really cool uh, towards the end where she's holding the door open uh, to get the last few people out. And we see Jadzia Dax and Curzon Dax encouraging, encouraging her and telling her she's strong and she can do it. And it just made me really wish that we had gotten some sort of way to have Jadzia and Ezri Dax interact on screen in Deep Space Nine. I think that would have been really cool. <laughs> that really would have been cool. I, it's like usually when I think about the different hosts of Ezri Dax, I think of Curzon and all the prior ones. And I don't really think of Jadzia, but yeah, it's like, yeah, Jadzia would be a former Dax uh, host that would be communicating with Esri, you know? And uh, that is really cool just to see those two together in a scene. Yeah. It's uh, it really highlights the alienness and, and coolness of this character. Uh, I think back to the Deep Space Nine episode, The Siege of AR-558, where she's talking to another engineer and she says something along the lines of, you know, I've never been in combat before, but uh, Jadzia Dax and Tarias Dax have both been in combat many times and she remembers what that was like. And it's, it's really cool, that idea of drawing on those past host experiences. 
Um, speaking specifically about this story, I don't know. I, I, it wasn't my favorite in the book. I do have to say there's some issues I had a little bit with the art, although the art is generally pretty cool. Uh, there's just a couple parts where I was kind of drew me out of the story a little bit. And, uh, I, I feel like it, it's weird that they're fighting the Andorians and it's kind of interesting that later books get into, you know, the Andorians splitting off from the Federation, but I don't think that's what this is drawing from. I think this is kind of an alternate just idea that something like this happens after Deep Space Nine's over or something like that. It just seemed odd to me they were they were fighting the Andorians. I thought that too, but I was really thinking that maybe they were playing off what is later developed in the books with the Andorians, or maybe it's just a coincidence. But you're right. I mean, if the books had no influence on this, why why go there with Andorians? Why not make it Klingons or Romulans or something else, you know? Um, mm. But I, I, I don't know. I think because they may realize that a lot of comic readers may also be reading the books, the novels. So, I, yeah, I don't know. Could be. Yeah. I don't know. It just... Uh, just was an interesting choice on their part, and I'd I'd love to know why that was. I'd I'd love to get a glimpse into the into the thought process behind that. Like I said, it's it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just kind of something that makes me go, huh? I wonder why that is. And that might even be the whole point, you know? Yeah. Well, and the other thing is, speaking of the books, the uh, relationship with Esri and the other uh, Dax hosts reminded me of Captain Esri Dax because all these hosts are giving her all this advice. And what we saw in the books is uh, Esri has progressed very far in her career as not just being a counselor, but because of all these past hosts helping her, she was able to quickly rise up to the rank of captain of a ship. Mm -hmm. So it made me think of that too. Yeah. And there's, there's, you know, for as simple as this comic looks, there's really a lot going on here. And I think it's a really cool glimpse into Ezri's life and psyche. And uh, even Jurandax, the murderer, as, as they point out here, has a role to play in uh, helping Ezri recognize things and that sort of thing. So, yeah, every single past host plays a role of some kind, which is really cool. Well, the next story we're going to talk about is called Consider Eternity. This was written by Brandon Easton with art by Josh Hood and color by Thomas Deere. Now, I'm just going to lay it all out here right away off the top. I loved this story. I thought this was so cool. Um, basically, we join the V'ger entity, uh, which is this newborn life form that's combining Will Decker, Ilea, and the Voyager 6 space probe right after the events of Star Trek The Motion Picture. And they've now turned into this kind of godlike entity, and they're exploring, and they find this place called the Q Continuum. And there's this kind of impish being there who helps this entity understand what it is to be an omnipotent godlike entity and of course this is q john delancey's q now i just watched star trek the motion picture a couple weeks ago uh it's i love that movie i really do enjoy the motion picture so this was just perfect timing and everything about this story in how it portrays q is everything that i love about the q character when he gets to 
uh, ridiculous and over the top and comic relief in some of the Voyager episodes. I kind of just roll my eyes. But when he's talking about the big ideas, like the universe and the meaning of life and all that sort of stuff, like in all good things, I just love that cue. And add to that the fact that the artist gets John Delancey perfect and the writer has his voice down just absolutely perfectly in this. I just, I loved this one. I was in love with this story. So Dan, were you in love with this story? (laughs) I was totally in love with this story. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I can't say the same. Ooh, we disagree. Interesting. Um, It's not that I don't like the story. I'm just not in love with it like you are. And I'll tell you why. But before I say that, I do agree with you. I I do like this portrayal of Q. It's not the silly Q. It's not the over the top being too funny and silly that we get in some comics or novels. But um, it really is the Q that is the menacing, but all knowing in a sense about the universe. And we learn something from him. The thing that I didn't fall in love with is the V'ger entity i guess you would call it i don't even know what to refer to it the the decker ilea character and it's not that it's done badly it's just that i've been waiting for a story for years that deals with what happened to decker ilea v'ger after the motion picture and when i first got to this first page i was like oh my gosh i've been waiting for this forever and i think because it's such a short story and in a lot of ways it feels more you know, it's more of a Q type story that Mm. it just kind of took away from what I've always been wanting. Like I really want to dive deep into something with this character. So it's not the story itself. It's just that I want something more from the whole Decker Ilea V'ger thing than a short story with Q. But outside of that, I do agree with you. I think the art is great. And uh, the story is is uh interesting i like the fact that they're like on a farm in a field and then we see decker in his uniform with a q in his suit three-piece suit (laughs) that is i think no it's not a three-piece suit but he's in a suit and tie and uh what i really liked is the whole uh big bang how it's beginning and the end that they're looking at yeah there's a lot of really cool big ideas in this this story made me think of another Star Trek story that I've read. And if you haven't read it, you, this might be more up your alley. Uh, the V'ger entity does have a role in it. But again, it's kind of a small role, if I remember correctly. But it was in Strange New Worlds 8, I believe. And I believe it's the story Alpha and Omega by Derek Tyler Attico. And I don't want to give too much away, but uh, basically the Borg managed to assimilate the Q continuum and it's kind of the end of the universe Mm. and it's really fascinating. I don't really want to say more than that because it's really cool. Leave it there. Um, Wait, did you remember the title and the author off the top of your head? Did you just look it up? I just looked it up. Okay. I was going to say, I'm impressed that you just called it out like that. (laughs) (laughs) I can't find um, plot details about the story. I just, I'm pretty sure it was the one written by Derek Tyler Attico in that strange new worlds, uh, book. So I hope that's the right story. I might have to dig out my copy at some point and make sure. Uh, well, if, but, if it's wrong, then somebody will correct you in the Babel conference. 
definitely. <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, I don't want to say more about the story, but it's really cool. It's one of my all time favorites from Strange New Worlds. So uh, you'll you'll want to check that out. I think you'd like that, Bruce. OK, I will check that out. <laughs> All right. Well, story number three is another kind of on the fun, whimsical side of Star Trek. The story is called My Human Is Not, and it's written by Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly with art by Sonny Liu. Now, this story is all from the perspective of Data's cat, Spot. (laughs) And basically, it's his perceptions or her perceptions of the world, depending on when the story takes place, (laughs) I guess (laughs) he or she, he or she. Yeah. Um, and you know what this cat thinks of it's human, it, which is what he thinks of data as, and it's kind of, you know, uh, told in, you know, throat spots day, you know, it's food time. That's the second best time. Soft hands time is best, is first best time. Which means that we've now established that Data has soft hands. Yes. Now, I was thinking the whole time while reading this of the episode that you and I recorded with Justin Ozer over on Earl Grey. uh, And the episode ended up being called What Does Data Smell Like? Because it was an episode all about the pets of Star Trek The Next Generation. That's right. It was Earl Grey episode 253. Perfect. I knew that off the top of my head. I didn't have to look it up. Liar, liar, pants on fire. (laughs) And it actually answers some of the questions we had in in that. They must have been listening. I think so. (laughs) So this is is a really cute story. Um, Spot, you know, plays a role in foiling a plot by someone. I don't really want to give away the whole... uh, what happens in this story. Cause I think it's really neat and how spot is able to suss out that something is wrong and, and, you know, turn the tables on, uh, the antagonist of the story. And then, you know, at the end of the story with data and the, the care that he shows for spot and, uh, the compassion that this supposedly emotionless Android has for his cat was just really touching. I, I loved this story. I thought it was adorable. It is adorable. As it started off, I thought, oh, okay, this is just going to be kind of a sweet, boring story. I just thought it would just be like, oh, the everyday life of Data's cat. Like, okay. And then, yeah, it got uh, to be a bit interesting because uh, we have an impersonator in the room (laughs) and uh, Barkley is involved. It's not the mere Barkley, you know, it's the real Barkley. Um (laughs) But yeah, uh, and yeah, Spot does smell, which makes me wonder if he does smell data because he's smelling humans. He's recognizing other smells. And he does. Oh, man. There's one line where Spot does refer to data's smell. Oh, yeah. Right. It's right at the very end when Spot is coming to on the uh, operating table, I guess, in sickbay. Uh, Spot has required medical attention after an incident. And you you kind of see uh, what Spot's thoughts are. And he says, I hurt as he's waking up. And as he's kind of recognizing his surroundings, he sees data and he says his eyes are right. His smell. This is right. This is good. So Data does have a smell that Spot associates with him. So the question has been answered. 
Yeah. So Data does smell. We don't know what he smells like, really, but we do know that he smells good to Spot because Data is Spot's human. You know, it's really interesting how there can be two podcasts on the Trek FM network that have addressed the issue of Data smelling. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) (laughs) Who says we're ever going to run out of stuff to talk about? I mean. Yeah, we're going to uncover every corner of the Trek universe. What does every character smell like? <laughs> I always love it when people say to me that aren't familiar with this, the you know, podcasting and what we do or listen to. They go, oh, so you do a Star Trek podcast. What do you talk about? I mean, how can you talk about something every week? I'll say, well, we'll talk about like, does Data smell? What kind of smell does he have? <laughs> There's a whole episode on that. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> Well, um, yeah, like I said, I love this story. I, th- I think it was one of the best ones in the in the book. My second favorite, I'd say. Uh, yeah, I'd probably say that too. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, the final story in the book is Histories. And this is written and with art also by Matthew Dow Smith. And the colorist was Sean Stephen Struble. Now, this is... I, I kind of liken this story to an episode of Voyager. I knew you were going to say this. Yeah, Living Witness, which yep. is one of my favorite episodes of Voyager. And like that one, this takes place uh, many years in the future, further ahead than that one. It's uh, over a thousand years in the future, apparently. And this alien race is teaching the history of uh, what they call the Massacre of Dock which was their first contact with an alien species. And according to their histories, Captain Kirk of the Enterprise led a group onto their planet and gunned down, you know, many of them and planted the Federation's flag and com- and claimed the world for the Federation in service of the Federation's prime directive, which is to conquer worlds and establish dominance over the entire galaxy. Now, there's one student, though, who speaks up and says that she does not believe that this history is accurate and that there are other stories that the Federation was actually a force for good and benevolent. And because of this, she's shunned and kicked out of, of this institution of learning or wherever they are. Uh, but she kind of maintains faith in these stories that the Federation was good and not this force for evil that their history says it is. Uh, So, yeah, that really reminded me of that Voyager episode where the doctor has to prove that Voyager uh, wasn't a conquering warship filled with, you know, horrible people, but actually on a mission of peace. And this also made me think of the Short Treks episode Calypso, because that takes place a thousand years in the future. And uh, they refer to, and this is confirmed by the writer of that episode now. So spoilers for Calypso, (laughs) if you haven't watched it, maybe, I don't know. But uh, they, he refers to the Vidrash in that episode, which is actually the Federation. So, you know, a thousand years later, things have kind of shifted and, you know, there's been a drift in the language. Is there been a drift in the morality of the Federation? Maybe, I don't know, but, or maybe how people see it or something like that. Uh, and that kind of made me think of this, this as well. Yeah, I thought about that too. The fact that they have the perception that the Federation was evil and was and they were conquerors 
leads me to believe that the Federation, of course, is gone because it mentioned that they were members of the Federation, that they're, they perceived that they were forced to join. So the Federation has been gone for a long time. And that tells me that it's been a long, long time because, you know, for the Federation to be gone and people now talking, oh, they were evil and they conquered us means that it was probably, you know, hundreds, thousands of years ago. So what happened to the Federation? Why aren't the, why isn't the species part of the Federation or whatever anymore? What, even if it's a new iteration of the Federation, what has taken place? So yeah, it kind of reminded me of that aspect of Calypso. And I definitely agree with you about it seeming very familiar to the living witness episode of Voyager. I mean, I got that right away at probably by the second page where I was just like, okay, this is sounding very much like living witness. I love that story of living witness. I like this story, but it's so similar that it didn't seem all that unique, you know? Mm -hmm. And if this was maybe a longer story that then would have taken a different turn and something really different uh, to build off of, then it would have been really fantastic. But it's just playing that idea of history sometimes gets rewritten. And then there's those that believe a different interpretation of it that ends up to be true. Yeah, exactly. Like you said, very similar to the lessons that we get from living witness. So yeah, not a lot new here. Um, it's interesting, you know, briefly to see Kirk and his crew through the eyes of someone who maybe doesn't see it as something, a force for good, but for evil. There's some, you know, interesting stuff there. But for the most part, this is, yeah, a story that has been told before, for sure. And the uniforms that Kirk, Spock, and McCoy are wearing, they look like the original series uniforms, except imagine them looking the style of the tunic being like a barbershop, what a barber mm -hmm. would wear, like the little buttons on the right side of it and the flap or something. I mean, they look kind of cool in a way. Yeah. Or maybe, uh, and, and this might be a darker interpretation, maybe a butcher might wear or something like that. Yeah. Too. I was even thinking of a pharmacist back in the old day or something. Mm, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you get my but Yeah, definitely just slightly more sinister. Um, they've also got armbands on, which makes me immediately think of, you know, Nazism and stuff like that. Oh, so. that's funny. It made me think of the motion picture, their jackets. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> you went with Nazis. I went with the motion picture. Ah. <laughs> potato, potato. No, I don't think so. <laughs> but yeah, no, it, it's, it's a interesting story and well told, but, uh, yeah, it's very familiar for sure. Yeah. But overall, I mean, the art's good. Everything about it. It's a good story. But uh, mm -hmm. yeah, if if we didn't get the episode Living Witness, then we would have talked about how original this is. <laughs> exactly. So overall, this whole kind of one shot waypoint issue, I think, is a winner. Like I really enjoyed, you know, overall the entire experience of reading this. Uh, the spot story, I think to me was the one when I initially looked at them, I was going like, okay, that's going to be kind of, but actually turned out to be one of my favorite ones in here. Uh, you know, there's a lot of just really cool ideas in this book and I think it's definitely worth picking up. 
I think the great thing about Waypoint is it does get to explore different aspects and different stories of the Star Trek universe. So many comics are a series or a miniseries. And for example, you're not going to do a miniseries about the V'ger entity meeting Q. More than likely, there's not going to be a six-issue series about that, you know, because mm. they typically want to stick with crews from the TV shows or the movies or whatever that people want want to read. And then maybe a one shot, maybe. But the thing is, the waypoint allows it to be a series or in this case, like a, a trade paperback of several stories that you can go off into these other directions without committing to a series or committing it to a one off comic. And so it really allows you to explore those different angles and different aspects of the Star Trek universe. And it's like you said, Dan, it's almost like short treks in a way. So I like that analogy because it really does feel that way. Um, just as, especially with Calypso because Calypso and short treks is a character we've never seen before in a different time period. We've never seen before. We don't see any of our original crew. And that's the kind of stories that we can di dive into with waypoint. And I mean, come on to get a story about spot, where else are you going to get a spot story? Exactly. Yeah, this was really cool. Um, and, and it's kind of, how I envision short treks maybe eventually being like right now they have the discovery sets and they're all kind of related to discovery. But I kind of wonder if when we get multiple Star Trek series on the air, will those short treks kind of be shared among them? And will we have different stories that take place, you know, anywhere in Star Trek history? I mean, we've had one episode already take place a thousand years in the future. You know, will those stories maybe take on a wider bent and we'll see stuff like we see in the waypoint comics. You know, you're opening up a whole can of worms because that's exactly what I'm hoping that's going to happen with oh, short tracks. I'm right. I, I know <laughs> I expressed this somewhere on maybe another show or maybe it was on the, in the Babel conference or something, but it's like, why not have different, outside of discovery. I mean, we have our TNG cast. You could do an, just a short track of Riker and Troy married on the Titan. I mean, you'd have to create Absolutely. a whole new set, but maybe it's just in their quarters or maybe it's just in the mess hall of the Titan, or maybe they're just on Risa or something celebrating one of their anniversaries and a little adventure takes place there. I mean, you can do so much stuff with the uh, DS nine cast, the enterprise cast, the Voyager. Yeah. Cast. I mean, it's just like, heck you can even <laughs> do a captain Sulu short. You know? <laughs> oh man. Yeah. I would be all over that. Can you imagine like a short treks about Jonathan Archer becoming the president of the Federation or something like that? Like you could do any of that stuff. Sulu as an admiral yeah. or something like in the early 24th century. It'd be great. <laughs> oh my gosh. Don't get my hopes up. <laughs> oh, I know. This is why we read the books. Cause we can get those things from the books. Exactly. Well, uh, it sounds like we both think that the Waypoint one-off is a winner, so that's awesome. Uh, let's move on now. We're going to talk about some feedback that we got on a recent episode on the Babel Conference. This is for Literary Trek's 252 Continuity Cop. And that was the episode all about A Time for War, A Time for Peace, by Keith R.A. DeCandido, and we also had the opportunity to interview Keith during that episode. So 
Uh, let's take a look at some of the feedback on the Babel conference. Yes. I see a comment from Justin Ozer and he says the interview was fantastic. I love all the insights into the final novel and the whole series. Keith, you mentioned that Kira is one of your favorite characters. And I smiled because Kira is my favorite Trek character. I know that you've gotten to write Kira in different places in Star Trek fiction. What is it like writing Kira? Are there any difficulties in writing for her character? Thanks. And Keith does reply that he loves writing for Kira and that she's one of those characters who is effortlessly competent and who also doesn't take any crap from anyone. And that he goes on to say that she reminds him of Mike Airman Trout from Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul played by Jonathan Bank. And uh, he says he it's especially fun to write Kira as she was coming into her own as the commander of Deep Space Nine. Yeah, that was a little, that was a really cool insight. Kira's always been one of my favorite characters as well. Uh, so it's, you know, it's fun to see that, you know, other people and writers uh, appreciate her as well and, and love writing for her. So that's cool. You know, Kira was never a favorite character of mine, but over the years, she has become more of a favorite character of mine. And mm -hmm. especially because this is literary tracks, so you people get this. In the novels, I mean, just seeing her as commander of the station and and just all the different responsibilities and the books that she has gone through and, and experiences, I just, you know, she has over time, she's like a good, fine bottle of Romulan ale. <laughs> I like it. That's awesome. Well, Justin also left another comment talking about Ambassador Alexander Roshenko. And he says, I think one other place where Alexander appears as an ambassador is John Jackson Miller's Prey Trilogy. Um, he's absolutely right about that. And I, for some reason, thought we had mentioned that in the episode, but we actually didn't. We talked about him being in the Prometheus novels, but he is also in the Prey Trilogy and plays a role there as well. So thanks, Justin, for pointing that out. Um, I love Alexander as an ambassador. I think uh, it's a really cool use of the character. And a great uh, replacement for Worf. And then Kay Frick says, another great interview. I would love to see Keith get to write more of the civilian side of the Federation and continue the story for characters like Alexander, Rugel, and whoever the new president is. And uh, she goes on to say that the character, she loves that the character is based on Keith's great grandmother. Yeah, that was a really sweet comment. Um I loved finding out from Keith about the, you know, the origins of non-Bako and that sort of thing. Uh, Kay also talks a bit about stuff that happens in later novels that we will not spoil here because this episode isn't about that. So, <laughs> <laughs> But it will be coming up. Well, no, we've already covered it on past episodes and past books, so. Yeah, you'll, you'll want to direct your attention towards the Fall Trilogy. And those of you who've read that know what we're referring to. And those of you who have not... Go read those. They're good. <laughs> Definitely. Well, we also have a comment from Stefan Seitz, uh, who says, thank you for another great episode. It's so great to revisit these stories this way. I read them a lifetime ago, back when they were originally released. It's amazing how listening to them vividly brings back to mind how great the continuity stuff works out in the greater Star Trek lit verse. I can't wait for your podcast of Articles of the Federation. A great interview and show you are awesome, guys. Literary Treks is the high point of my week. Keep up the good work. <laughs> so thank you so much, Stefan. That's really great to hear. We really appreciate your comments. It's the high point of Bruce and I's week, too. So we have that in common, for sure. 
absolutely. This is uh, one of my favorite shows to record. I had to be careful to say that because I don't want to <laughs> under uh, like upset Brandy. <laughs> we all know the truth. It's okay. I do it's love right. doing live from the edge, though, too. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you guys all for your great comments. We really encourage you all to leave comments in the Babel conference. And as you can see, we will read them on the air and respond to any questions you have. So thank you guys so much. Now, as I said at the top of the show, we do have a special episode for you, an interview with Michael Jan Friedman by Literary Trek special correspondent Brandon Shemutala. I don't know if he knows that we call him that, so this might be a surprise to him. But uh, yeah, he did this interview at the Northeast Trek Con in Albany, New York last year. So let's jump on over and give that a listen. Yeah, this was uh, from late October, so it's just a couple months old. This is Brandon Metella sitting at the Northeast Trek Con, and I'm sitting with Star Trek author and author of many more things than just Star Trek, Michael Jan Friedman. How are you doing, Michael? I'm doing great. Thanks. Excellent. Thanks for asking. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I really appreciate it. So uh, we were talking a little bit earlier, and I got to tell you about my fandom and how Star Trek books kept my Star Trek fandom alive. You know, in that fallow years when there wasn't much going on, I always had a book to go to to continue the adventures of all my favorite Star Trek series. So... Um, my first question is, so how did you get into writing originally? Well, I'd always wanted to be a writer. And uh, I, just, I just didn't know anyone who did that. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, one, no one in my neighborhood was a writer or even knew a writer. So, um, uh, so as much as I wanted to be one, I, you know, it, it seemed like a, a pipe dream. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I was in college, and Isaac Asimov came to speak. And, uh, and I asked him, so do you don't do this full-time, do you? He goes, yeah, as a matter of fact, I do. And I said, oh, a full-time writer, that's crazy. I, somebody actually, somebody makes a living from this, that's great. But I, di- I didn't think I was going to be such a person. I did, it, he was only one, right? Mm-hmm. He was Isaac Asimov. So um, uh, as time went on, though, I, 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 I wanted to write a book. I couldn't, I couldn't not write. And uh, and I said, all right. Well, you know, if I can if I can just write one book, I'll die happy. Mm-hmm. I remember telling this to people. Just let me write one one novel, and I'll be happy. And um, um, I uh, I in college I wrote um, I wrote these books, and I wrote them as independent studies, and and um, but I never really thought they were getting published. And then a guy. Um, I went to college with uh, was the grandson of a of, of a son and grandson of two guys who had a literary literary agency, and uh, and he said, Mike, he goes, you know, because he had seen my writing here and there, and he said, when you write your novel, you come to me, I'm going to represent you, and I said, great. So I so I wrote a novel, and I brought it to him, and he said, uh, you know, Mike. This could be the next great science fiction classic, or this could be a pile of horse manure. I have no idea. I don't read this stuff, but uh, so, so he, he referred me to somebody else, and um, and uh, uh, I went. I called that that uh, other agent, and and uh, and I said, uh, you know, I'd like to send you my novel. I'm a new writer. And uh, the woman there said, "Well, you know, dear, we're not, we're not looking at any new writers right now." 
and, and in my bravado, I said, you know, don't you want the next Stephen King? And she said, well, actually, we're very happy with the current Stephen King. <laughs> Stephen King's agent. So, so uh, but, I, but, I, but I asked a very good question, probably the best question I've ever asked in my life. And I said, um, so, so uh, do you know anyone else who's looking for, for new writers? And she said, yeah, there is this agency. Uh, let me give you the name. Mm -hmm. And I called them, and they liked what I, what I had done. And uh, they said, we just want you to... Um, beef it up a little here, beef it up a little there, another chapter here, another chapter there, which I gladly did. Um, and, uh, and they sold it mm -hmm. to Warner Books. It was my first, uh, my first novel called The Hammer and the Horn, based on Norse mythology. And uh, I had gone from being a, a, a devoted reader of science fiction who, who had a dream of, of writing a book someday, but never really thought he would. To, to somebody who had written that mm -hmm. that book, and and it made a huge difference in my world. Mm -hmm. it, it 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 flipped the script completely mm -hmm. um, to to have a contract for for even one book. And then um, I, uh, I I was having uh, lunch with my agent and the the woman who had bought the book, uh, a woman named Kathy Malley at Warner. Um, and uh, it had taken me over two years to write that first book. And, uh, and uh, so my agent said, so when would you like the sequel? Because it was kind of implied that there'd be a sequel. And uh, the editor said, I don't know, how about like uh, six months from now? And I went, six months from now? And, and my, my, my agent kicks me under the table. I almost <laughs> choked on my linguine. And, and she says, oh, yeah, Mike can do that. No problem. Right, Mike? And I went, oh, yeah, no problem. So I actually had to quit my job in order to make that deadline. But I did make it, and that was sort of the, the beginning of things. But um, I, I, I was somebody, and I'm sure not unlike many writers, who, who just couldn't not write mm -hmm. and, uh, and couldn't keep trying, couldn't, couldn't not keep trying. Mm -hmm. To uh, to get something published. So how did your how did the works these published works that you did how did that lead you into tie-in fiction? Well, uh, actually, in, in in a painful way. <laughs> <laughs> what happened is um, uh, I wrote uh, four books for uh, for Warner, and then what happens is you know when you're a mid-list writer, what happens is they eventually say, "Well, that's great, thanks," and and make room now for the next guy that we're going to try out. Um, you were somewhat successful, but, you know, you didn't hit the bestseller list, so we got to try somebody else now. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was kind of crestfallen. And just about that time, as I was, you know, uh, ready to throw myself off a bridge, my, my, editor, my uh, agent calls mm -hmm. and she says, how would you like to do a Star Trek book? And I said, I would, I would love to. And she says, well, you know, they're opening up the uh, Star Trek publishing program a little. They're, and they need more writers and more professional mm -hmm. writers. And I said, wow, that would be great. And she goes, and the editor read your, your, um, your uh, the books you did for Warner and loves your writing. And I said, that's, that's incredible. I, I would love to do that. Mm -hmm. And uh, she said, so just write an outline and I'll send it over. So I wrote an outline and uh, sent it over to Dave Stern, who was the editor at the time. And 
and and Dave said, Mike, he goes, this is exactly what we're not looking for. <laughs> he said, this is like, it's like a fantasy, and it's Scotty and Scottish gods. And I said, but you like, you know, my first, the things I did at Warner were about <laughs> mythology and fantasy. He goes, yeah, 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 do that writing in science fiction. So I said, okay, and, uh, and I gave him another outline. And he read that, and he goes, Mike, I love this, but, you, but there's no ending. And I said, well, I, I didn't want to ruin it for you. He goes, no, 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 that's not how this works. So, so uh, he goes, put on an ending. So I did, and there was an ending uh, with Romulans and so on. And he goes, now, I really like this. And uh, that was my first Star Trek book uh, called Double Double. Double Double, yeah. Which was a uh, uh, takeoff on what a little girl's made of. Yeah. Which I had mentioned earlier, that was the first book, the first Star Trek book I ever bought was Double Double. It was the first one I ever read, and I hadn't seen what are little girls made of yet. I bought it solely on the cover, you know, like that purplish pink oh, with, yeah. with the mirror and the two Kirks. I'm like, this looks awesome. i got to buy this book. It's a great so, cover. Great cover. <laughs> Excellent. Right on. So now, you, so you stuck around with Star Trek for quite a bit. You wrote a lot of Star Trek novels. You've gone into some other fandoms as well, which we'll touch on. But one of the projects that you've worked on that I want to ask about is the Star Trek books that you wrote with some other people. So you wrote with uh, Peter David and Robert Greenberger. So how is it writing a novel with other people? Is it a challenge or is it easier? It's the nightmare. Those guys are horrible. <laughs> no, they're actually a couple of my best friends. Um, and uh, it's, 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 it's great. It, it, it's great because, you know, you're um, uh, writing is a solitary business generally and, and this gives you a chance to write with people and make it a make it a team mm -hmm. proposition and and uh, especially when it's people you like I can't say every single collaboration I've ever done has been a, a satisfying one but when I write with those guys uh, you know we, we we know you know like they say we finish each other's sentences yeah, yeah. we actually literally sometimes finish each other's sentences so um, uh, generally collaboration is a great thing mm -hmm. it's not efficient it's not as efficient as as writing a novel on your own, but it's very satisfying and, 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 and more fun in a lot of ways than writing something on your own. Um, so, you know, I don't know if it's for everybody, but, but I, I enjoyed it. Okay, excellent, right on. How did the uh, Planet X novel come about? So this is a crossover between The Next Generation and X-Men. Yeah, you know, the, um, uh, the editor at the time, John Wordover, um, had some interesting ideas, and, it, and, and um, Marvel had the license for the Star Trek comics, mm -hmm. and also had, obviously, uh, had owned the X-Men, and so because one company was doing both, you know, had their, their, their hands on both properties, um, there was already a relationship. <clears throat> And uh, we, you know, um, the editor said, uh, called him and said, you know, we want to do a crossover. It started out with a comic, mm -hmm. and then it, and then there was a novel. And because I'd worked in comics and, <coughs> excuse me, in Star Trek, um, we, uh, I was a, a likely candidate, a likely victim. And uh, and it was great. Mm -hmm. You know, I had, uh, uh, it was called Planet X, because mm -hmm. what else would you call a... <laughs> Uh, crossover between Star Trek and the X-Men and um, uh, it was great because I was able to juxtapose characters and situations and uh, for instance I had Worf 
uh, and Wolverine in the holodeck yeah, yeah. in a battle uh, a battle sequence and then I had um, um, Nightcrawler and Jordy you know talking about you know teleportation you know Jordy said yeah we just step into this transporter and and Nightcrawler said oh that's interesting I I, I don't even need to do that <laughs> and uh, um, I had some, you know, some. It, it, it lent itself to some cool juxtapositions, some cool ironies. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them, um, uh, Terry Terry Hatcher, um, who played Lois on Lois and Clark. Before she got that gig, she was um, uh, uh, a one-shot character uh, in an episode of Next Generation called The Outrageous Sakona. Mm-hmm. She was a transporter operator called B.G. Robinson. Mm-hmm. And I guess she had some some uh, romantic uh, inclinations towards Akona. And uh, and I said, wait a second, she was Lois, huh? So I have Angel mm-hmm. uh, uh, flying all over the Enterprise D. And uh, it's close quarters. It's not easy for him, but he, he's able to fly through the corridors. And she sees him. And she says to one of her colleagues, I can't believe a man can fly. <laughs> awesome. Tied right. in that way. So, so there was some cool stuff in there. Um, and it was a lot of fun. And fans had, you know, I, I think a lot of fans loved it. And a lot of fans hated it because mm-hmm. it, it was, it was um, jarring. Mm-hmm. You know, you have two very different... Um, very different uh, uh, realities. Right, right. You know, one's... one's uh, a lot more logical, and, mm-hmm. and you know, than the other, and uh, uh, one requires a bigger leap of faith. Actually, I'm not sure which it is that requires a bigger <laughs> leap of faith, but um, but it's hard to match them, and and so I tried to do that as best I could, and I think I, I was happy with the way it came out. Yeah, yeah. But um, but it's not easy, and I could see a fan going, "Wait a second, you know, well, no." Yeah. See, in my opinion, they're just fun. Like IDW has had a few comic book releases releases recently. They had a they had a Star Star Trek and Legion of Superheroes, which I'm not familiar with a lot of the comics mm-hmm. crossover. And they had a Star Trek Green Lantern crossover series. And they've just released uh, Star Trek the animated series style comic crossed over with Transformers. Right. Yeah. So, in my opinion, they're just they're just fun. Right, they're not to be taken seriously. They're for just entertainment, and it's like just a fun idea. And it's nostalgia. It's the clashing of people's fandoms, joining them together. And I just think it's fun. Well, you know, you know, people are very protective of their fandoms. Yes. I mean, look at every time uh, a new Star Trek uh, uh, production comes out, people are going, "Oh, that's not Star Trek." Yeah. Um, it, a funny story. Um, way back when, when DC had the um, uh, Star Trek license. Um, a couple of uh, executives, one from DC and one from uh, Paramount, were talking, and uh, they said, "Hey, what if we were to do like a Star Trek Superman crossover?" Mm-hmm. And they went, "Wow, that would be interesting." So they went back to their respective um, employers, and uh, over at DC, it was like, "Yeah, okay, we could do that because DC had the Star Trek license. It was it was possible." And then um, uh, the, the, the woman who worked at Paramount went back to her boss, and they had a meeting about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, she and, and uh, you know, a bunch of suits, basically. And she said, well, how about a, uh, a Star Trek Superman crossover? And there was silence for a second. And then one guy said, 
but Superman's not real. <laughs> yes. And you could kind of see what he meant. It's not, you know, it's not live action at the time yes, anyway. Yes. But, but this is, this is the kind of thing. Star Trek is real, right? 100% real, right? Uh, you got right. it. Yes, you it's fact. It. Yes, it is. So how does writing for comics differ from writing a novel, like in getting the assignments and then writing? Because the comic's generally only about 24 pages or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's different in, uh, in uh, certainly in that it's collab- uh, comics are collaborative. Okay. Yeah. You're, you have to write a script and depend on your collaborators to um, come up with the images and the sequences that, that, that you have in mind. Um, in my case, very often they came up with better ones. Mm-hmm. So I was very, I was generally very happy with them in, in that regard. Um, so it's collaborative. That's part of it. And you're you're um, telling the story that, uh, through uh, a visual medium when it comes to comics. And it's not just a matter of telling that story in a different medium. Because you're in a different medium, you want to take advantage of the strengths of that medium. So there are plot points in a comic that you would never include in a, in a novel mm-hmm. uh, because they don't they don't play to the strength of uh, of, of prose. Whereas uh, you know in a comic there are, there are things you can do that uh, um, you can you can make your point with an image mm-hmm. or set up your point with an image. Um, and and it really behooves you to do that. Um, so it's different in that regard as well. Um, I think uh, more complicated stories are best told in prose because mm-hmm. uh, you just have a lot more a lot more uh, uh, opportunity to convey information. But um, they're both great, mm-hmm. and I'm and I'm thrilled to death, you know, that I've had the chance to do both. Mm-hmm. How much control do you have as the story writer over the layout of the panels and what's shown in the panels on a comic? Uh, you can have a, a lot of uh, control in the in the the style that's that's generally associated with DC Comics. You have a full script, so you write it as if it were a movie, and you have a lot of control. You can say uh, it's a long shot. You can say uh, the guy has this kind of expression, um, and. Uh, Leave this in the panel. Leave this out of the panel. You can have a lot of control. Um, in the Marvel, the Marvel style, um, what they do is they they'll uh, write a description of the page. Mm-hmm. Here's what takes place on the page. The the um, uh, the artist will break it down, mm-hmm. and then the writer will come back and write dialogue based on the the artist's vision of okay. how it should proceed. So um, it's it's possible to have a lot of control. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Now, going back to Star Trek books here, so as you started to work more with Star Trek, you started to get more assignments and you started to get a lot of novelizations. You were novelizing, uh, novelizing the, the movies, the episodes, and things like this. And What kind of challenges are there in trying to adapt uh, a screenplay or a teleplay? Well... Let's see. I mean, for one thing, you usually have a, a short deadline. Mm-hmm. For all good things, which was the 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 last uh, the two parter that ended the next generation the season, the uh, series ender, um, I had sixteen days oh my to write goodness. the whole thing. So that's that's usually the worst part of it. Um, 
it's it's easier in a lot of ways because you you have the um, the story laid out already. All you have to do is is translate it into you know take the dialogue and go. He said, mm-hmm. and and you've got uh, you've got half a book right away. So mm-hmm. now you're only responsible for the other half. Um, so it's easier and it's fun in, in that regard, and it's also in a way collaborative. Mm-hmm. Um, for the uh, the. Um, next generation episode relics with Scotty. Um, <clears throat> I wanted to I wanted to um, put in some stuff and and uh, but I didn't know if uh, if I'd uh, if I would be working contrary to the original ideas of the writers. So I, I called Ron Moore mm-hmm. and I said Ron. Uh, Tell me about this episode. You know, I, I want to do this. Is that okay? He said, not only is that okay, he goes, but here's a scene that we were going to put in that we didn't have room for. Okay. Here's an extra scene. And uh, and then we were also going to do this. We were going to show what the what this world was like, but we, we couldn't. So uh, maybe you want to do that. So so by talking to Ron, I was able to, you know, Ron was a, a producer on the show at the yeah, time. Yeah. I, by, by talking to him... I actually um, got a lot of great ideas, and 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 it was good in that um, uh, the the um, novelization, novelizations, adaptations are always collaborative, and the more collaborative you can be, the better the better off you are. The the one um, one problem, which isn't really much of a problem that I ever came up against uh, in a novelization was the adaptation of Batman and Robin. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought I'd be, you know, thought I'd be, it'd be interesting to call him the Batman mm-hmm. because that was originally the way he was described in the comics. And uh, the only thing, the only thing they didn't like was B. Yeah. They didn't like the definite article. So I had to take out like 82 iterations <laughs> of, of the definite article before Batman. It made the book like two pages shorter. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Excellent. Now, one of the one of the great things about the Star Trek novels is this the, this universe that you got to build and you got to create with the Stargazer series. Now, you started this originally with the book Reunion, right? Which was because Kirk uh, Picard's Stargazer was coming onto the ship. There was a murder mystery going on. Mm-hmm. So, how did that novel develop? And then, how did that lead to the Valiant? And was the Valiant like a, a soft pilot, a quote unquote, for the Stargazer series, or did that come out of? that well um you know uh there was an episode called the battle mm-hmm. and in the battle they mentioned the stargazer and they mentioned one character from the stargazer a guy named vigo mm-hmm. and and i i've always liked to shed light on dark corners and and since they hadn't touched the stargazer in a while i said let's let's find out about the stargazer who who that crew was and and uh what their relationship with Picard was. And so I, I pitched a, uh, a murder mystery, which I had never done, um, with those characters. And um, they liked it. And uh, it was so well received by the fans that they encouraged me to do other other stuff. And so I in the uh, I was writing the Next Generation comic for several years. So I, I had a, an arc that included some Stargazer characters. And... Uh, <clears throat> They would occasionally come up here and there. Other writers asked me if they could use them. And 
um, there was a point where various veteran writers in the Star Trek program were getting their own series. Mm. You know, gee, I'd like to explore this in this era. And the one that I, I really wanted to work on was um, my Stargazer crew. Mm -hmm. So they said, sure, go ahead. And I, and I did a six-book uh, six set mm -hmm. of, um, of Stargazer crew stories. Uh, and it was great. It was great. The idea was that I was going to do a lot of character work and very little traditional adventure. Mm -hmm. So there's a, there's a lot of subplots, and the, the main plots aren't aren't that prominent. Mm -hmm. It's really more about what's going on on the ship, romances and and uh, intrigue and. Uh, you know where danger arose that you didn't expect. So um, uh, it was a different kind of series. Mm -hmm. Something different, yeah. I really liked those books a lot. There was a lot of interesting characters. Uh, I can't remember the character's name. We were trying to come up with it earlier. I haven't had a chance to look it up. But the gaseous being mm -hmm. and the relationships they had that she had with Paris, mm -hmm. right, was really fascinating. So we had this gaseous being who would go into a suit. Right, right, right. In order to like move around the ship, and in order stuff. to function, you know, among among her fellow uh, crewmates. Yeah, we had, you know, uh, she was, you know, I, I like to be original, and you know, I guess everybody does, and but but, and it's hard, but but every now and then you come across a character or a situation, and you go, I've never seen that before, and in the annals of Star Trek, there there were no gaseous beings; they were energy beings. But uh, this was something that I that uh, I thought we could we could explore, mm -hmm. and uh, and yeah, she falls in love. With, there's a there's a point where she and Paris engage in something physical, mm -hmm. and um, uh, part of that was interesting because she was a gaseous being, and part of it was that it was a Paris, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, <laughs> that uh, that she was involved with. So I was able to, you know, the. Um, Inventing your own crew is one of the delights of writing Star Trek. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah. Uh, and so that was that was a lot of fun. Did you have a plan for where it would go? Because the the series ended after six books, and at the end of the six books, Jack Crusher still wasn't on the ship yet at that time. And yeah. you know that was such a huge event in Picard's past. It was one that I was always looking forward to. And David A. Goodman wrote the autobiography of Jean-Luc Picard, and he, he did touch on that, and it's it's wonderful. But I'm, I always wondered, what did Michael Jan Friedman want to do with that story? Yeah, there was there were things that I wanted to do that I didn't have a chance to do uh, because it was a six-book set and because the Star Trek program, which had expanded um, about the time I got into it um, and was, was putting out... Uh, something like 24 original novels uh, a year at one yeah. time was starting to contract and so they were saying well I don't know if we can devote another six books to the Stargazer which isn't after all one of our one of our uh, tentpole um, uh, um, uh, properties mm -hmm. it's not next gen it's not Deep Space Nine it's something else so we're going to clamp down on those and uh, Give our diminishing opportunities to the to the traditional um, Star Trek titles. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So so yeah, I would have eventually touched on Jack Crusher, and we would have seen how that went. Did you have any ideas that you can share, like where you might have gone, like how you might have told the death? 
I don't know if you can share. I don't well, know. Can, but, you know. Well, you know, we 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 see um, some of that in um, in reunion. There is some information about his death, which I, you know, people may want to read Reunion, yeah, okay, yeah, so uh, yeah. where it started. So um, I'm not going to discuss it too much, but we did see some of some uh, uh, hints about that. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, um, and its aftermath. Yeah. In a way, in a way, Reunion is all the aftermath yeah. of, of Jack Crusher's death. Um, but. Um, yeah, I, I honestly, if I told you I remembered what I was going to do, I'd be lying. Okay, I don't that's know. fine. That's but I'm fine. sure, I'm sure it was brilliant. Excellent. I'm sure it was brilliant. I'm sure it was because I, I, that's the one series that I was looking forward to seeing more. I really enjoyed. It. I really enjoy your writing, and, and thank you so much, very much, for taking the time. Um, at, Mike, at this time, would you like to just uh, tell the listeners what it is you're working on now? Is there any projects coming out that you're working on that they can watch for? Sure, sure. Well, um, will this air uh, very soon? Yeah, it'll probably be very soon. Okay, so um. Uh, I'm working on a, a Kickstarter for a short story collection. It's uh, the the main um, uh, the uh, the title story is Headless, okay. and uh, it's a science fiction story about um, a species where a guy uh, wi- uh, a guy winds up without his head. Not going to okay. tell you too much about it because that'll spoil it. But winds up without his head and how useful he is. Um, on the starship after that happens. Okay. He's an alien, so okay. you know, there are possibilities. Um, and I'm also um, uh, working on a graphic novel called Empty Space uh, with a wonderful Brazilian artist. His name is Caio Cacau. And um, uh, that's a Star Trek-ish, but with a lot of twists and turns and... Uh, and, and unexpected events, so it's kind of a little like you're peeling back the onion as you did in Lost, except I know how it's going to end. Okay. That's, that's different from Lost. Excellent. But those are the those are the two projects I'm working on currently. Okay, cool. And where can people find you on social media, and where can they find the Kickstarter? <coughs> well, the Kickstarter um, is on, is on Kickstarter. It's uh, headless and other improbable excitations of the muse. But if they go to headless, they'll they'll, they'll find certainly it. find it. Um, and it's on for another three weeks. Um, and then um, uh, I'm at uh, michaeljanfriedman.net is my website. And um, they can find me on Facebook uh, under Michael Jan Friedman. And they can find me on Twitter under FriedmanMJ. Excellent. Right on. Well, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to meet you. And thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. It's great to... to go in and see how it was you worked on these books and everything. Great. Thank you, Brandon. It's been a pleasure. Live long and prosper. Well, I thank Brandon for doing that interview. And one of the funniest parts to me was that story about Superman isn't real, but Star Trek is. (laughs) That was great. I laughed at that part for sure. Uh, And I mean... I can't really blame him. That's kind of how I end up thinking of my favorite franchise in relation to other stuff, too. You know, Star Trek is a continuation of our world today into the future. Like, that's how it was conceived of. So to me, that's reality. I buy that. I so relate to it because I think that's one reason I always say I'm not a big fan of crossovers. But when we read the crossovers, I go into it with fun and I actually 
do enjoy them. But that's why I never wanted a crossover because I thought, well, legions of the superheroes, that's not real. Oh, doctor who that's not real. You know, planet of the apes, yeah. star Trek to me, it's like, you're saying, I, I know it's not real, but I like to pretend that it really is our future. Definitely. Well, it's been a lot of fun talking about the definitely real Star Trek today, but it's not the only thing we've been discussing on the network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Literary Treks. I just want to sing. After every time I hear the title of this book, I want to sing, A Time for War, A Time for Peace. <laughs> Funny, funny story. When when this was being pitched at the sales con in the sales meeting uh, at Simon and Schuster, somebody on the sales force was was worried that we that they'd have to get permission to use the titles because because it's a song by the birds and 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 John Ordover, the editor, had to gently point out that it was actually from the Bible and therefore kind of <laughs> melodic tricks. You know, I suppose as being an actor, you know, I just was really kind of feeling into Clive's character and and trying to express the emotion of what I felt like he was going through on the Sarangi. Mm -hmm. So then it became much more of a personal, individual character. It was how I experienced doing it. The 602 Club. But I look at this film as being almost three, maybe four different films. Because when we're in Krypton, Krypton, it's very sci-fi. Oh, you mean uh, excuse Krypton. me, Krypton. Yeah, you mean we, Krypton. We Krypton. I'm yeah. sorry, Marla. Krypton. Krypton. Yes. <laughs> so when we're in Krypton, <laughs> Krypton, uh, it's very much a science fiction movie. Next thing, all of a sudden, we have Kal-El come to Earth. And now it feels very Norman Rockwell. I mean, it's almost like, I mean, totally different from what we just saw on Krypton or Krypton. To the journey! Brace for impact. Brace for impact, <laughs> yes. Okay, if, uh, I, I, I'm going to make a commitment to myself right now. If I am ever perishing in a plane crash, I am going to say brace for impact right before I die. To everyone on the plane. I will brace somehow for impact. hear it across the miles. It'll be very dramatic. You know, with some dramatic theme music playing, hopefully, just like we have in Voyager here this episode. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, YouTube, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. If you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Just visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks can include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. 
The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks and that will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at TrekFM and on Facebook at facebook.com slash TrekFM. You can find us on our Goodreads group where we have bookshelves with all of our previously covered books as well as the currently reading section so you know what's coming up for future shows. Plus, great conversations are happening about all the books and comics that make up the Star Trek literary universe. Just search for Literary Treks on Goodreads and click Join Group. We'd like to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Shemutala, Justin Ozer, and Jeffrey Harlan for their support of the Trek FM network and being associate producers for Literary Treks as well. Now, Bruce, when you're not envisioning that historic meeting between Captain Jean-Luc Picard and Professor Xavier, where can we find you? Well, you can find me with the X-Men in the Babel Conference, and you can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex, and you can find me on the Star Wars Report podcast talking about Star Wars, and also here on the network doing Live from the Edge with Brandy Jackala, and that comes out the next day after a premiere of a new episode of Discovery on YouTube. So Dan, when you aren't complaining that Superman isn't real, where can people find you? Well, you can find me airing my grievances about the unreality of Superman versus Star Trek on my Twitter. That's at Kurtrats, K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can also find me on YouTube doing rants about the very same thing on YouTube.com slash Productions. Uh, You can find me on my website where I review Star Trek novels, both old and new, and that's at Treklet.com. And of course, you can find me in the Babel Conference, usually arguing all about how awesome and real Star Trek is. (laughs) Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.